Well, if you've got a bulletin on the way in, there is a sermon outline in there, and I would invite you to get that out. Follow along with me a little bit. We are uh, wrapping up our study through the Gospel of Luke today. But I want to say Happy Mother's Day to all the moms that are here. Uh, motherhood is one of the hardest but also most influential roles in human society. And I appreciate each one of you uh, that uh, have taken that on and have that role in your lives. And you know this if you're a mom, but um, being a mom is a joy that can take a toll. There's a story told about a little girl who was watching her mother uh, in the kitchen do dishes at the sink one day, and she noticed that her mother had several strands of white hair uh, sticking out against her um, darker brunette head. And this little girl, uh, maybe unwisely, but she, she inquisitively asked, Mommy, why are some of your hairs white? Some of you have heard that question before. And her mother replied, after probably having a rough morning, but her mother's reply was, well, every time you do something wrong and make me cry or unhappy, one of my hairs turns white. <laughs> and uh, the little girl was silent for a few minutes. And then she said, poor grandma. <laughs> you must have been very, very hard to raise. And you know, Grandma would probably agree with that evaluation, right? Because uh, raising children is hard. There's a lot of things in life that are, that are hard. Life is full of hard moments. And if we were going to go around the room and just sort of individually itemize the hardest parts of life for us this morning, we'd all have a different list. We'd all have different things that would be unique entries because we all face one-of-a-kind challenges and unique pressures and stresses. Um, but there would also be some things in common. There would be some overlap, right? Uh, two of those commonalities would be trauma and would be temptation. Hard things that we all can relate to. We've all faced traumatic moments when life took us in a direction that we did not plan or want to go in. Uh, the unexpected phone call, the unwelcome diagnosis, uh, the uh, turn of events in a negative tone. We've all had some things that just fit under that banner, trauma, right? Traumatic moments. It's a universally hard thing. Another commonality is that word, temptation. And again, the areas uh, where temptation is a real struggle for you is different than the person that sits next to you. Uh, every one of us have a uniqueness uh, in our struggle in that way, but we all understand how hard it is to experience the pull, the, the draw, the enticement towards something we know that is wrong, and then go through that over and over and over again. So those are two of life's harder moments and harder experiences. Trauma and temptation fit under that category, which makes it kind of interesting for me that in the last night of Jesus' life here on earth, both of those words were central themes. Uh, if you got a Bible or you got the Bible app on your phone there, if you would find Luke chapter 22, we're going to look at Luke 22 and start at verse 44 uh, this morning. As I said before, today we are finally finishing study through the uh, Gospel of Luke, and we're finishing kind of an awkward way. You know, if you look at this and you think, oh, there's more chapters in Luke than just chapter 22. Um, just because it's taken so long, over a year and four months, we have covered already some of the stuff at the end of 
of the Gospel of Luke from here to the end in different formats. And so next week we're going to start a new series, but this caps the study through the life of Jesus as researched and recorded by Dr. Luke. And it does so on the last night, the final night of Jesus' life, an hour before Judas was going to show up in the Garden of Gethsemane with the temple guards to arrest him. And it portrays, and I didn't really think about it this way, but it portrays Jesus' hardest moment to that point in his life. It really does. And so I think it helps us to, to look at this under that title of Life's Hardest Moments. It starts in the upper room. And we'll start in verse 24, but the first thing uh, that we're going to read about is the familiar temptation, familiar temptations of the 11 disciples. Verse 24 says this, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now, if you set that in its context, uh, it sounds rather bizarre because we looked at the previous verses last week. Uh, Jesus has just celebrated with the disciples the Passover. And seconds ago, Judas has left the room to go and betray the Savior. And Jesus just shared the fact with his core team that somebody whose hand was at that table is about to betray him. Uh, and from that setting, uh, they started questioning, who could that be? And as you read those verses, you realize it begins to sound like the backseat of a minivan full of a bunch of kids on a long trip. Because it moves from, um, who would do such a thing, to, well, I would never do such a thing, to, I'm better than you are. Um, now, what spills out over the next few verses is just the series of temptations that the disciples struggled with that sound childish, but if we pause and think about them, we realize in our less than ideal moments, we probably struggle with some of them too. I put the whole list up here and then I'm going to go back and look at them because you find in these verses the temptation to think I'm greater, to think I would never, and to think I can handle it. Let's take them one at a time. I'm greater. Somehow that becomes the topic of conversation of verse 24. This dispute breaks out about who's, who's greater. Who's, who deserves more honor at the table. Uh, it seems to be a recurring power struggle in a sense within this group. But Jesus pulls them back. And you know he read what he had to say there. Uh, with the observation, guys, you know what? That's the way unbelievers think. The Gentile kings, unbelieving leaders in our culture, they think that way. But that's never been the target you're supposed to be emulating. Uh, you're supposed to be following the way I think. You're called to follow me, to become like me. And that means greatness shows through serving others. And his line there at the end, I am among you as one who serves. That had been proven just moments before as they all sat around the table with filthy feet. And the only one that would get up and wash them was Jesus himself. Wrapped a towel around himself and grabbed the, the water and went from one to the other to the other, including Judas, 
and washed their feet. Jesus was among them as one who serves. It was a job no one else would stoop to do, but Jesus did it. And in, in his action and now in his words, he redefined greatness as being somebody willing to serve and put the needs of others ahead of his own. Uh, most of us kind of struggle with viewing greatness in that kind of light. Uh, it's just part of the human nature that we struggle with that. Uh, we like other people to wait on us. You know, We like other people to serve us, uh, to follow us. And uh, you know, we live in the day of social media where the most influential people have the most people that follow them, right? Followers has sort of become a different definition in our culture. This really has nothing to do with anything, but I thought it was funny. Uh, I came across this past week that the Twitter page for uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken ha follows only 11 individuals. And if you click through there where it says there follow 11 people, um, you find that they, the uh, KFC page follows seven random guys who all have the first name of Herb. And they follow the original four ladies who made up the music group, the Spice Girls. And if you can remember some of the old commercials, you realize that uh, KFC follows 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> Stupid, I know, but I found it so funny when I came across that this past week. Um, but it does highlight that sort of following is a big thing today, right? People are into following and social media and that sort of thing. The desire for followers and the implied influence that brings that people follow you really does permeate our culture, especially the youngest generation. I read of a poll uh, that indicated that in Gen Z, which I guess is about 25-year-olds down to, you know, 10 or a little younger than that, of Gen Z, 86% of young people, when they grow up, they want to be social influencers, social media influencers who have a following, who people look up to. Um, other people listen to them, and they've gained fame over the internet. 86% think that's the, that's the thing to shoot for in life. That's the life's greatest pursuit, because it communicates one thing. I'm famous, people follow. People follow me. Um, and it's not just that one poll. Uh, a video trended recently in which some kids were asked if they'd rather have one million dollars or one million followers. Now, I know my answer, but it's rather interesting. Every one of them answered one million followers. Every one of those kids would rather have one million followers than one million dollars. Uh, the thirst for greatness, for having people follow and, and fame uh, isn't new. But today, maybe especially in the generation that we're raising, it's, a, it's an issue to focus on. It was a familiar temptation for the disciples. It's no less familiar in 2023. Um, but Jesus says here, you know, instead of worrying about that, how famous you are, how great you are, how many people follow you, focus on following me and serving, serving people. Now, he does give his guys some props. We stop at verse 27, and Jesus is still talking in verse 28. He says, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These eleven men had stood by Jesus. 
through the thick and thin of the past three years. Uh, they, they would demonstrate in the next few hours a cowardly streak, every one of them, uh, but they would also, in the end of the story, they would all give their lives for the Savior. And uh, God will honor them in the kingdom, and Jesus makes that promise to them there. At that point, I'm greater won't cross their minds. But on this night, it was still a temptation. It was still a struggle. That I'm greater a problem. Uh, the next one, familiar temptation, is I would never. And uh, this one kind of zooms in on Peter. Listen to verse 31. Jesus is still talking and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny three times that you know me. Now, the opening line in that is, is rather interesting. Uh, all of you is translated that way intentionally. It reflects just one Greek word that normally is just translated you. Uh, but uh, it is plural in this case. And so the translators wanted to make it very clear what Jesus is saying is that Satan aimed to take all of them down. He wanted to, to trap, to trick, uh, to derail all of them. Um, but Peter was the leader. And so Peter came into center aim. And I think it's valuable to recognize from that that there was not one disciple then, nor a serious disciple of Jesus today, that isn't a target for Satan through temptation to derail. But again, Peter was the leader. So Peter becomes the center focus. And Jesus says, I've prayed for you, Peter. I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Peter's responses, and you know how the story goes, you know, Peter's responses in the next few hours could easily be described as failure. He would encounter the pressure of being identified with a condemned criminal, and he buckled under that. Three times, Peter denied even knowing Jesus. And Jesus knew in advance that was how it was going to play out. And he informs Peter of it in advance. But he also says, I love his words, when you turn back, when you recognize your sin, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. Be the leader that God called you to be. From Peter's perspective, there's no way. I'm ready to die. I, I would rather die than deny you. From Peter's perspective, there was no way any of that could happen. And that was the temptation. I would never. I would never. And the final phrase is, I can handle it. Verse 35. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it. Also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It's written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, see, Lord, here are two swords. That's enough. Jesus replied, 
Now, this is probably the most puzzling part of this passage as I struggled through it this week. Uh, but Jesus starts by you know, recalling the missionary trips he'd sent them out on a couple years earlier. Uh, and back then it was all new, it was all fresh. Jesus had empowered them, given them a message, and enabled them to even cast demons out. But, but he brings it back to their mind right here. And he says, you know, when, when I sent you out and told you not to worry about taking anything that I would provide for you, you know, you don't need to take money or a suitcase or a weapon, did it work out okay? And the answer was clear, yeah. They had everything that they needed. God intervened. I'm sure they had some stories to tell about how God had provided in ways that they didn't ever expect. He'd taken care of them, provided for them every step along the way. The recollection was that it had happened exactly like Jesus promised. God had provided for them. As a church, we've seen the same thing over all these years uh, together. God has a way of providing just what you need just at the point that you need it. And it's been amazing to watch that unfold. But it does go against the grain of our human nature, doesn't it? To trust God to provide. Because we have this, this bent in us, and we'd like to adopt the rather familiar temptation thinking, I've got it. I can handle it. I can do this on my own. And that surfaces a little bit at the end. Jesus knew what was about to happen. He was about to be named among criminals. And so he tells them, this time I want you to be prepared. Um, take your wallet, your backpack. If you need to, pick up a sword to protect yourself. And they misunderstood that and it started to go off the rails because, you know, we've got two swords here was the mentality. Well, let's, there's going to be a battle that we've got to be ready for. And Jesus knew that wasn't about to happen. Um, but I think Jesus' point was that once he left, things would change. It would be like it was, but it would also not be like it was before. And they need to be wise from this point forward while they continue to trust. And both of those things are important. Be wise while they continue to trust God's provision. You've probably heard the old saying by Oliver Cromwell, trust God but keep your powder dry. That conveys a little bit of the balance there. There's a, an Irish saying that I like even more, uh, trust in God but don't dance in a small boat. <laughs> and we need to trust that God will take care of us, but we also need to be wise in the decisions that we make and the way that we go through life. Because as sinners, we, we get into this sort of imbalance thing. I can handle it. I can do it. I can take matters into my own hands. I can solve my problems. I've got this covered. And you know this from your story, just like I do in mine. That often makes a great big mess. Uh, at least it prevents us from trusting God to take care of us in life's hardest moments. Trust God, but be wise in the decisions that you make. I think that's what Jesus was telling his guys at the end. But they stumbled with it. And we all do. We all do. The temptations are familiar. The temptations are real. And if you put those three things together and you just sort of think about them as a package, there's one word that easily filters to the top, right? You recognize it. Uh, it's the word pride. All of those, all three of those are all about pride. And pride is this common struggle, this familiar temptation, even among those who faithfully serve God, which is where these 11 men were. We can struggle with that draw towards pride. It is a familiar temptation 
and can create for us some of life's hardest moments. But from there, the story moves to the other, the other word that I mentioned at the beginning. Temptation is common and trauma. Trauma is common. The trauma of the fully aware Savior is described in verses 39 down to 46. It says this, Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. I really don't believe that any of us can grasp the weight of uh, what Jesus knew he was going to experience in the next 24 hours. Uh, the enormity of what Jesus would endure on the cross is more than what we can as limited created human beings wrap our heads around. In his prayer, Father, take this cup from me if you're willing to. He, he employed an Old Testament uh, image that is very common throughout the Old Testament. You find this picture of God's wrath and his judgment on sin as being a cup. A cup that's either poured out or, or drunk. You find that in Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25. It's all the same picture. picture of God's wrath over sin, God's anger over sin. And Jesus grabbed that, applied it to what he knew was about to happen. He was fully aware of what would take place the next day. Jesus completely knew that the next day would bring to him the trauma of enduring the wrath of God and the judgment deserved by all of sinful mankind. He would step in. He would step in for all of us. He would endure the punishment, the horrific punishment, beyond understanding that we all deserve as human beings. It was the ultimate trauma. Jesus completely understood the plan of God for the next 24 hours. Here he was, God in a human body, and just considering that experience, just considering what he knew he was going to endure, it was so draining, so exhausting, that says an angel is dispatched from heaven to strengthen him. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. It's rather interesting to me that Luke is a medical doctor. He's the only one that records that little detail in there. And uh, we don't know uh, for sure. It could be that it appeared like drops of blood. But there is a medical condition where the intensity of anguish can cause uh, blood to come out like sweat. And interestingly, uh, Dr. Luke is the one that includes that detail. But it highlights the point is the trauma was intense. Uh, Christ had always known it would be the greatest struggle of his pure, sinless, eternal life to be separated from God the Father and bear his wrath against sin. And so what did he do? Well, you know, we read those verses and you saw a word come up over and over again. He prayed. 
he prayed. His prayer was one of honest transparency and matched with humble submission. And his request, it's understandable. You know, if you think about what's happening here, it's understandable. Father, if you're willing to take this cup away, do it. If there's just some other way for the deliverance of sinful mankind to happen, let's go that direction. But he was God in the flesh, and so he knew the answer already. He knew the answer already. There was no other way. This was the only way. The only way the sin of mankind could be atoned for would be if God himself stood in for mankind. If God himself took the punishment for us all. And so, he quickly moved from this honest transparency, if there's just some other way, to humble submission, to a commitment to obedience, yet not my will but yours be done. His prayer was, Father, would you take this away? But when God said no, Jesus humbly recognized God's will was best. And he moved forward with a view to the future, with a view to the other side of the cross, with a view to eyes on the goal of what the trauma would accomplish that he was going to have to endure. Uh, He pressed forward. He was fully committed to obedience. And there's something in that. In fact, I think there's something in in all of this uh, packaged together that I find extremely, extremely practical for us in navigating life's hardest moments. Um... The strategy modeled by Jesus for life's hardest moments is very clear down through here. And the first piece of it is that one word, pray. Uh, When they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus left eight of his guys at the edge, took three in further, and uh, Peter, James, and John were closer. He gave them very clear instructions, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And then he went off, a stone's throw away, went off further, talked to the Father, and when he came back, all three of those guys were zoned out. You know, they're they're all asleep. Um, He woke them up. And he said, watch and pray so you will not fall into temptation. And the other Gospels record it. Actually, he did that three times. Um, it is such practical advice. In, in the traumatic times of life, in the temptation moments of life, the most helpful action you can choose is to be aware of the spiritual conflict in the middle of all that and pray. Talk to your Heavenly Father. Um, He didn't just tell them to do it. He modeled it. Back in the upper room, he told Peter, I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. He employed prayer as the weapon um, to address Satan's attack. And in the garden, you know, here he is experiencing just the weight of trauma, the weight of all of this. And three times Jesus slips off into the darkness and he talks with his heavenly father. I know it just may sound cliche and has been blatantly minimized in the culture we live in. But for true children of God, there is nothing better in the hardest moments in your life than to pray. Watch and pray is a key part of the strategy. And it's true, also, I think that only when we see life's hardest moments as spiritual battles in which prayer has a part, that 
We're going to choose prayer as our first response. Um, the struggles that you go through in life, they are spiritual. You might not think about it that way all the time or look at it that way initially, but they are spiritual. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul wrote about our difficulties as not being against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's the enemy. That's the reality of what's happening around us all the time. And with that backdrop, after just clarifying the enemy in that way, uh, Paul then goes on to list off the key defensive armor, put on the armor of God. Stuff like truth and righteousness and faith and the gospel of peace and salvation itself. But then he wrote this, verse 18. Followed all that up with this. And pray. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Sounds to me an awful lot like Luke 22. Uh, be alert. Watch out in those life's hardest moments and pray and pray and pray and pray. It's the first piece of the strategy to navigate life's hardest moments. Pray, and then here's the second one. Trust God's will. Jesus' prayer for uh, Simon, for Peter, was that his faith would not fail. It's significant that he prayed that way. He didn't pray that Peter wouldn't have any problems. He did not pray that he would be healthy, wealthy, or happy. He prayed that his faith would not fail. Uh, he prayed that his, his trust in God would continue. And no matter what happened, Peter would just continue to, or at least come back to continuing, trust God's plan, trust God's will, trust God's working in his life. He prayed that for Peter, and he models it himself. He models it himself. Not my will, but yours be done. Not what I feel like right now. Not what I wish would happen. Not my dream for the next season. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. He models it. He was one who trusted God's will. And in times of trauma and in times of temptation, trusting God's will is far from an easy button to push. But it is the, it is the crucial thing to do. I appreciate those of you that have been praying for my mother and my stepdad, Gene. After they were here in March, uh, Gene's health deteriorated quickly, very unexpectedly. And, and he is in a nursing home now with quick onset dementia of some sort. It's been hard a couple months. Um, because he doesn't make much sense when you talk to him. And uh, likely will never be able to return home, and so that obviously puts quite a heavy dynamic in for my mother. But uh, Gene retired from GM, spent a stint in the Navy, and we used to have some really interesting conversations. Um, the last summer, last summer when I was over there, we had this long talk about military basic training. You know, all the stuff that you have to go through, that you have to learn to be prepared to be a soldier or a Navy seaman. And we were just kind of comparing and contrasting the two things. 
And I remember, you know, those days of Army basic training, uh, the, the stuff that you had to learn and had to qualify for, you know, had to be equipped to, to do, uh, not just firing a rifle so you actually hit the target, but things like handling hand grenades in the right way and not handling them in the wrong way. I think I failed that part of the course the first time around and had to go back and do it a second time. Um, you know, how to survive uh, with just what you're carrying on your back when you bivouac out in the middle of nowhere, how to read a map and navigate terrain with just a, a compass. The point of training like that is to provide the basic skills to make it through hostile environments. The most difficult moments of combat. And I thought of that this week in studying this because these verses really do the same thing for us as Christians. Um, they provide the basic skills for navigating life's hardest moments. Now I would add to what we have covered here. Uh, daily contact with, exposure to the Word of God. That is the truth and that is the most important tool that you have. And prioritizing engagement in church family. But you know what? These, these, what we've mentioned here today... That's just right there. If you're going to navigate, if you're going to be prepared for the most challenging pieces of life, the best thing to do is what Jesus tells his guys. In the hardest hours of his pre-cross life, pray, trust God's will, and then repeat. Do it again. And do it again. And do it again. In life's hardest moments, whether it is feeling that magnetic pull towards temptation or the blurry weight of trauma, the best thing you can do is pray, decide to trust God's will, and then do it again, and do it again, and do it again. And so, you know, as we close, I want you to, to think about how this plugs in with your life, where you're at, what you're going through. Because we're all at a different place, we're all at different stages, and we all might identify with one or the other of those words in a clearer way, a stronger way today. But what about you? Whether the hardest moments for you involve temptation or trauma, the antidote is the same. The antidote is the same. Ask for help. Ask for help from your Heavenly Father. And then trust His plan as that unfolds in your life. We're going to close our service by singing a familiar hymn, 433. It's a sweet hour of prayer. This lady's come to help us with that. I'm going to ask you to pray with me, okay? Let's talk to God for a minute. Father God, I thank you so much for this morning. I'm thankful for the, the example set and the words communicated through Jesus' hardest hour to that point in his life. That in order to navigate through all of this, the best thing to do is pray and then trust that God's will is best and He'll walk, He'll lead, He'll guide through both times of temptation and times of trauma, things that are hard, things that fit under that banner, life's most difficult moments. Praying, trusting your will, and then returning to do that again and again and again is the way forward. I pray for all of us to think about as we close what for us is the biggest struggle, the most difficult moment today. And how can we 
take your truth and make it work right there. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.